At Morgan Stanley, old school hard work meets bold new thinking. At 88 years old, we still see the world with the wonder of new eyes, helping you discover untapped possibilities and relentlessly working with you to make them real. Old school grit, new world ideas. Morgan Stanley. To learn more, visit morganstanley.com slash why us. Investing involves risk. Morgan Stanley Smith Barney, LLC. Live from the NASDAQ market site overlooking New York City's Times Square, this is Fast Money. I'm Melissa Lee. Tonight's trader lineup, Guy Dami, Tim Seymour, Karen Feinerman, and Dan Nathan. Tonight on Fast, we're charting the sell-off. One top technician lays out the key levels to watch. Plus, he's got three safety trades to make if you think there's more selling ahead. Also ahead, Canaccord's Tony Dwyer seeing big opportunity in today's pullback. Why he says today's weakness could be the perfect setup for a year-end breakout. And later, we're breaking down the banks. Financials getting smoked today. We'll take a dive into the options market to see where this trade is headed next. We start off with the sell-off front and center. Stocks falling hard with the S&P 500 handing in its worst day since May. The Nasdaq plunging nearly 3%. A big driver today's drop. New fears out of China. Chinese property giant Evergrande is on the brink of collapse. Fears of a debt default growing and the potential fallout could have ripple effects around the world. Every S&P 500 sector finishing the day in the red with financials and energy the worst performer. So what is your take on today's sell-off? Guy Dami. Hey, Mel, I'm glad you mentioned May because that's what I was going to lead with. You know, we saw a move like this in May. By the way, you've been seeing it around the edges over the last couple of weeks. Obviously, a bit of a crescendo today, but you saw it in early May. By the way, you saw this type of move in July as well. And both times after, you know, maybe a week and a half of two weeks of down moves, you saw the market rebound in a meaningful way. You know, what I've noticed is every time the VIX trades are close to 30, seems to be a level that we fail at. I've thought incorrectly, by the way, for a while, 4,100 is in the crosshairs. And I'll submit that that's probably still out there. That, that's the 200-day moving average, and that makes sense for a lot of different reasons. But I think this is healthy, and I think, you know, we have seen this before, so it's nothing to get all that exorcised about necessarily. Karen, I saw that you tweeted earlier that there's blood on the street. Some of the blood is yours, but, but you're already looking to opportunity. Definitely. Uh, feel the same way at the close? Yes, I, I think, you know, it was a big rally actually into the close. I don't really know why, but I, I, I don't, to the extent that this is sort of all pinned on Evergrande, I don't, I don't, I don't know. I don't think it is that big of a deal. I know we'll talk about that a little bit more later, but that, that's been happening in slow motion for a while. So, I mean, I think we will step back and this will be a blip. So I don't see anything really vastly different. I understand the fears of a little bit of a slowdown because of Delta and I think that's probably happening, but I think it, we'll see as companies start to report in not that long, we'll start to see what they're seeing for the rest of the year. So I'm, I want to buy things. So I did, you know, a day like today, I, it's hard to be patient. I can't fully be patient. I want to wait for a turnaround Tuesday tomorrow. I hope it's an ugly open as the world digests this news overnight of big market sell-off. The, I, the one thing I did today is just a, a J.P. Morgan one-by-two call spread, which isn't a giant bet at all. It is a bullish bet, but uh, for not a lot of money that it will take me through earnings because I think it's getting overblown at 10, 11 times earnings, two and change uh, dividend. And just a, this is a knee-jerk reaction to the 10-year, uh, uh, you know, spiking higher as the world panics a little bit. So... I have more to do tomorrow. I hope I get a chance. 
Let's get to the ambassador, because, um, Tim, we got to ask you as the emerging market specialist in the House, how you sort of game out Evergrande, and if there is a default, if they do fail to pay the two, uh, one is an interest, one is a, a bond coupon, uh, on Thursday, right. what happens? Well, so so this fits into also just the mosaic we've been we've been weaving for the last three or four months on China, um, on the slowdown, on the government seemingly uh, more concerned on social and political control and everything that they can use as an excuse to you know, assert communist values. Uh, I, I think you have a case here where there is some sense that uh, speculation and this this you know, prosperity for the masses dynamic, it's not a bad idea to let some of the you know, wealthiest people in the country, in this case, possibly the wealthiest man in the country, sweat it out. And, and so, look, I, I think to the extent that this is a headline, uh, many, many months in the making, by the way, look at the equity share price of Evergrande. This is not a surprise. Uh, we've been talking about this and a lot of people have been aware about this. We've been talking about a China property bubble forever. So, you know, has anything changed today? You know, I, I think to the extent Karen's and Guy have both been, you know, very rational about the approach here. Um, Karen, I know, is a big fan of Yogi Berra, and it's deja vu, deja vu all over again. <laughs> we, we, we did this September 3rd through the 23rd uh, a year ago, and we fell about 11 percent, uh, and the market's up 34 percent since then. If you want a glass half full uh, today, it's not in terms of assessing risk and some of the things that I look at. It, it's not that we rallied 53 S&P handles in the final 43 minutes, um, which I think is is a little bit of a, you know, a mirage, um, even though I don't think things necessarily have to return to yesterday's lows immediately tomorrow, whether we get turnaround Tuesday or not. I, I look, though, at dollar yen, for example, dollar yen uh, is a measure of risk in the currency markets and also more broadly, especially it was the original carry trade. To the extent that dollar yen is at near two-year highs, meaning risk on, didn't really move much today. Look at the Dixie, the dollar index, didn't really move today. And I know that the 10-year uh, was up almost half a point today, but if you think about where yields could have really plummeted on fears of a credit bubble uh, that may be starting to burst, I thought actually the, the bond market handled itself very well today too. So again, major risk measures uh, seemed pretty well contained today. Are you willing to sort of look past the stand, or do you put this in the context of a larger Chinese uh, government crackdown where the government seems to be willing to, to exact and to weather pain, um, whether it be the tech sector, online education, property, Macau, you name it, we've seen the pain that they're willing to inflict and that they're willing to endure. Yeah, I mean, if you think about all that stuff as a common thread mail over the course of, let's call it the last year or so, it seems to be kind of well orchestrated in a way. And, you know, Tim just mentioned that Evergrande, it's an upper left to the bottom right. This has been going on um, for about a year. I guess the real issue would be if you're asking an investor, do we look past this? Is like, OK, is there systemic risk? I look around and I say, yeah, our banks didn't act particularly well. I think uh, Karen just said that she looked like maybe, you know, said it looked like kind of panic selling. Well, the SX7E, which is the European bank index, was down nearly 5% today. So we would see it there maybe with their exposures first. And what are we seeing in credit spreads over there? And so this stuff doesn't just all happen at once, right? And if you think back to, you know, post-financial crisis, um, you know, 10, 12 years ago, it was a rolling credit crisis. It just started here and then maybe we hit it harder with some, some um, you know, crisis measures, that sort of thing. But then it kind of rolled its way 
across Europe, and there were always, always Chinese fears, right? And so throw together a growth scare here a little bit, and I don't think it's something that makes a ton of sense if you're an investor to look pie too quickly because just last week, the S&P 500 and the NASDAQ were up 20% on the year at all-time highs with valuations that a lot of people would say were stretched. Now, we'll only kind of be able to put our finger on that in hindsight, but when you see the sort of selling that we saw today in names and sectors that people loved last week, Today, they are calling into question valuation. They are calling into question how much longer this can go. So I am in guys' camp that I think a, a sell-off in an orderly fashion over the period of, let's call it, weeks or so, maybe back towards that 200-day moving average, might be the best setup for the U.S. stock market, no matter what you think is going on in China or not. Because one thing we do know is that growth has been slowing, not for the horrible reasons that the economy is going to hell, just that we had this massive of uh, the reversal on coming out of the pandemic, and we were likely to right, come back to levels that were pre-pandemic. And I think we will be back towards levels like that where GDP was in the low 2%, 2.2%. That was the 10-year average prior to the pandemic. I suspect that's where we are. But if you slow, you know, throw in together some sort of stagflationary thesis, stocks are too expensive. There is a brew, though, Guy, <laughs> that is unlike past situations that that is uh, coming together right now as we speak. And I guess I use brew because it's tis the season, right? It's almost Halloween here. Uh, we've got hmm. debt limit worries. We've got taper worries. We've got already slowdown worries, whether or not it's here in the United States or even in China before any of this Evergrande stuff started bubbling up to the surface. And now we've got this. Um, does that make, I mean, you, you sounded like you're you're willing to look past, and I'm wondering, you the skeptic, why is that? <laughs> you're throwing a little Shakespeare in there, aren't you? That bubble, bubble, Doyle in trouble or something, isn't that right? I mean, that's one of the, I I think I took that class one week or something in college. Why is that? Because for the last you know 15 years that we've been doing this show, I've seen this a number of different times. I'm not trying to be glib in any way whatsoever, but these sell-offs seem to be shorter and shorter in duration and quite frankly, less scary in terms of uh, what it means to market participants. Now, you're going to say with all these things going on, maybe it is. Yeah, maybe it is different this time without question. I bring up 4,100 because I think that would make sense. I think in an orderly way, that is the best thing that could happen. But again, this market has a way of uh, digesting headlines, dealing with it for the day. And then, you know, a week later, we're making new all-time highs. For example, you know, the VIX, I think, I think traded close to 30 today. I don't think it had a 30 print, but close. I mean, each time we've seen that over the last six to nine months, that has marked a top in the VIX and a short-term short -term low in the market. So I'm not trying to discount anything. I'm just trying to go back in history, look, and sort of um, make a thesis based on that. I mean, Tim, some people would call this a Teflon market. Some people would call this, you know, max complacency when it comes to, to problems um, facing us. Well, uh, you know, if you think about what is a little bit different this time. Uh, I, I think it's central banks. Uh, maybe they're not at the end of the rope, but but you've got massive inflation around the world. It's a lot harder for central banks to throw a lot more money at the problem, even though they find ways to do it on a day when Germany uh, prints a 12 percent year over year PPI. Uh, look, allocators can no longer feel comfortable if you've got the beginnings of a credit bubble that bonds are going to be a diversification away from uh, an equity portfolio. That's the problem right now. That's what's different. Um, the fact that we spent a lot of time in the last couple of years, especially at times where we were worried about a growth slowdown. 
we, you know, look, we have a war economy here, so to speak. It's been a, the war on the pandemic, and there's a lot of benefits that come from a war economy. But a year and a half ago, two years ago, we were starting to question that large tranche of credit um, that was, you know, forming the bottom end of investment grade that was possibly about to be a bunch of fallen angels. I don't think that's about to happen here, but you're saying or you're asking what's what's different. And, and look, this is at least a, a highly that credit can be a major issue for this market right now, um, even though right now, you know, look at look at where high yield bonds are now relative to where they were before the crisis, uh, before the pandemic. They're, they're so tight. There's no margin for error in a lot of the credit spreads out there. That's what worries me. Our next guest says today's pullback could be a great entry point into the market. Let's bring in Tony Dwyer, chief market strategist at Canaccord Genuity. Tony, great to have you with us. Um, you've been the number Thanks one proponent of watching what's going on in the credit markets. So tell us what should be going on in the in the bond in the excuse me equity market. So what are you seeing right now? Well, you, I think Tim hit it very well. You have had an extraordinary move in high yield debt. Um, actually, any kind of debt. So spreads have gone from blowing out during the pandemic, um, where credit was starting to dislocate, to being so unbelievably available. Not only is our, our spreads tight and yields historically low, companies are raising a, a record amount of money at those levels. So I think that's actually one of the more intermediate term constructive things for the market. As you know, Mel, I've been pretty cautious since I downgraded the market. Um, in April. And the reason was that everything looked so great. It was you had economic growth in front of you. The vaccines were working. There was no such thing as a, as a variant yet. Um, earnings were about to explode higher. That was the time to be nervous. And it, to me, now that we're heading into this kind of decline and credit still holding up pretty well, there's a record amount of money that companies are going to be able to use for buybacks. There is some support there in intermediate term. Yeah, Tony, I'm, I, you know, I, I posited that maybe 4,100 is a logical place in the S&P, and I know you don't like to play stock market necessarily. And by the way, you know, if people to go back and listen to the call you made, you actually were spot on in terms of under the surface, a lot of things that just got obliterated. But is there a level that sort of makes sense in terms of when this thing ends, the S&P 500 on, to the downside? Guy, as you know, and thank you. Um, I really follow four key tactical indicators and not a level. And, and here's why. The, the quant funds that have become so big and the passive investing that has become so big has taken away, quote unquote, I think, the importance of these levels because they're not built by human beings. Remember, a level that's going to hold support is because so many people, quote unquote, bought it there before that when it comes back to that level, they'll buy it again. But that isn't the case here because of the passive investing, in my opinion, and, and quant trading, algorithmic trading. So I look at, at the key indicators. And, and what I, I saw today is there's 90% of stocks in the S&P 500 are below their 10-day moving average. That historically, to me, is a heads up. It's short-term, too oversold and going to bounce, which I think Karen's right. Kind of surprisingly, it did it big at the close. Secondly, on your thought, Guy, on the VIX, um, it's not the absolute level to me of the VIX that's important. It's the 10-day rate of change. And if you look at the 10-day rate of change indicator on the VIX, over the course of the last year and actually before, when it gets to 50 or above, you're in the heart of it. It's either that day or the next day that you make your peak, even when it gets worse. So our call isn't that you go out and throw all your money. We, we took profits and we've been sitting on some cash since, uh, late, since the spring. 
do you put it all in on the next tick? I, I don't think so. Do, do you start to find those cyclical names that have been annihilated um, that can benefit from the good credit conditions back to what Mel asked about? I, I think you have to start to look at those names. Hey, Tony, it's Karen. Thanks for being on. So uh, you said you. cyclicals. Are there other um, groups you would favor and groups that you would stay away from? Karen, I, you know, I think it's the economic re recovery theme. Uh, what made us downgrade the market, I went back and I looked at my note today, and, and it looked like a dumb call based on the S&P 500 making new highs every day. But the internals of the market and most of the cyclical sectors that I was worried about are actually down from that level. So I think that creates the opportunity. The economic recovery theme, as you know, is pro-commodities. Um, the four sectors that would be in there would be financials, industrials, materials, and energy. So it's almost the playbook going into year end. We had the summer of indigestion that needed a catalyst to transition into the year end opportunity. I think Evergrande, I think the overbought condition, I think that buy the dip that hasn't worked, uh, you know, until, you know, very late today. I think that kind of catalyst needed a catalyst. And I think we're in the midst of that catalyst into the year end opportunity. I've proven that I'm not a great trader, but what I'm pretty good at is defining the whole risk reward. And I think we end the year in that economic recovery theme, just like we began the year into the economic recovery theme. Tony, good to speak with you on a day like today. Thanks for having me, Mel. Tony Dwyer, Canaccord Genuity. Um, Dan Nathan, let's say you're in the camp who doesn't, that doesn't believe that Evergrande poses systemic financial risk. I think there, there are probably a lot of people out there who are in that camp, um, but could actually uh, pose a, a risk to Chinese economic activity. I'm wondering yeah. if that then, if you think that then has an impact on U.S. equities or, or the U.S. economy. 100 percent it does, Mel, and I think that's the right way to think about it. I mean, this is not a black swan event anymore because it's out there. We all know about it, and at this point, it can be quantified. We don't know what, what the, the knock-on effects would be if it was systemic, but just I'm thinking back to my career in 25 years. There were numerous uh, you know, instances where a lot of people wanted to panic and say this was going to be systemic, and there was really only one that was, and that was the financial crisis. To, to your question about Chinese growth um, decelerating, they came out of the pandemic before we did. We already saw a lot of data decelerating, even consumer data. And I think that's why this Evergrande thing is multiple facets as it relates to consumers is really important. Um, and then just look at some of these industrial sectors or some of these cyclical groups that Tony was just talking about. I mean, Caterpillar's down 24% from its all-time highs in June. Guys, Russell 2000 hasn't confirmed a new high in the S&P 500 since early spring. And then if you look at rates, the 10-year U.S. Treasury yield at 1.3%. Again, it's been tracking small cap stocks and stuff. So the, 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 the growth deceleration trade has been on for months. And even Karen, I hate to tell you, your JP Morgan looks like it's making a massive head and shoulders top. It's in the same place it was back in March, and it's been trading in this range. So if growth is slowing globally and you throw any little curveballs into the mix here, which could be some little credit contagion or something like that, we're going to have a market that's a bit lower here. I'm not saying we're going to crash. This is not the financial crisis. This is not February or March of 2020. But man, guys, 10% move down to the 200-day moving average. That would be healthy. Guys, the market would still be up on the year. Yeah. 
Coming up, more on today's big sell-off. We are bringing you some safety plays. Chris Verone will be here to chart out where you can find some shelter from the storm. But first, for all over the after-hours action, shares of Lennar, that stock is on the move on earnings. We've got the details when Fast Money returns. Is America's primary system working? Is the Electoral College still the best process for electing a president? Could a third-party candidate ever be successful? In a new season of You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen gather the country's top experts to explore these issues and more as we approach the 2024 presidential election. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available now wherever you get your podcasts. Edward Jones, who knows that just like life, financial planning isn't only about long-term goals. It's about the moments big and small along the way. And when it comes to achieving everyday financial goals, Edward Jones works hard to connect you with someone you can trust professionally and personally. That's why they created their free financial advisor matching tool to help you find a financial advisor in your community. When you take the quiz and get your matches, don't expect just a list of resumes. You'll also see each financial advisor's story and personal interests. And when it's time to meet for the first time, they'll focus on your story, asking questions to understand where you're headed and why. Because Edward Jones knows that at the end of the day, behind every financial goal is a life goal. And that's what really matters. To learn more and find your financial advisor partner, take the quiz at match.edwardjones.com. Welcome back to Fast Money. We've got an earnings alert for you. Shares of Lennar on the move down about 3% after its earnings. Let's get to Diana Olick for the details. Diana. Yeah, Melissa, down about 3% after the company reported a mixed bag for Q3 and lowered guidance due to supply chain issues. Lennar came in with a beat on EPS but a miss on revenue as Q3 home closings were lower than expected. That was the company's first revenue miss in two and a half years. Like DR Horton and Pulte recently, Lennar lowered its guidance for Q4 closings to 18,000 homes due to supply chain constraints. That's below Wall Street expectations of a little over 20,000. Now, Lennar Chairman Stuart Miller said that the industry as a whole continued to experience unprecedented supply chain challenges, which we believe will continue into the foreseeable future. That, he said, was why deliveries were about 600 homes below the low end of the guidance. He said buyer demand, though, still strong, and that is reflected in the 5% year-over-year sales growth. Gross margin of 27% was the highest quarterly percentage in the company's history. That was driven, of course, by strong price appreciation. Revenue per square foot increased 14 percent, while cost per square foot only increased 8 percent. Melissa? You mentioned strong demand, Diana. What does the backlog look like? Uh, Very strong. Look, they're coming in with a lot of people coming into a market that still has nothing for sale. On the existing home side, we saw supply move up a little bit over the summer, but then it dropped again. We're hearing reports from Realtor.com that supply is falling again as more buyers come into the market, and that's only going to create more demand for the new homes. It's just a question of how fast they can get those homes built. So they do have a very strong backlog, but they just can't deliver. All right. Diana, thank you. Diana Olick. There are worse problems to have, Karen Feinerman. (laughs) Yes, I have some of them. (laughs) The strong backlog, is that what you mean? And the inability to deliver product? Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, we talk a lot about is it a sale delayed or denied? And to me, a house would be a sale delayed. 
So um, I, I like that they have a very strong backlog. That's great. I, of course, they will lose some sales along the way. I don't know. I sort of thought there was a lot to like in this. Um, they've been buying back a lot of stock around here, 96, 98. I don't know where the stock is now, maybe 94. So I, I'm bullish on the home builder and related, consumer related to home building trend. Um, rocky though it may be, I think um, the supply chain thing has lasted longer than I thought it would. But I still think the dynamic that was accelerated during the pandemic is still there, that millennials buying and people wanting to move out of cities somewhat, I still think it's there. And the supply demand dynamic that was many years out of whack is still out of whack. I mean, not denied, um, Tim, because there's really no other, there's not many other things to buy out there, as Diane had pointed out. So even if you wanted to say, I'm not going to wait for that home that's being delayed because of supply chain issues, there's not a lot of inventory. No, I mean, look, affordability and inventory are the two big issues, but and but there are major secular trends and, and, and dynamics at work here that I think continue to support this market as well, including rates that are going to stay very low. Um, and, and, you know, a credit uh, crunch of some kind could make credit harder to find, um, but it's going to bring rates down even that much more. But Karen's referring also to parts of this trade. If you look at the XHB, um, you know, the home builder, I mean, Lennar's about 4% of that index, but I think the number one stock is Carrier uh, or look at Train or even like a Tempur-Pedic Sealy. Um, these are ways that people are getting exposure to this trade, which I think is alive and well, even though Lennar has a backlog of 31,500 homes and, and the story for them remains very strong. I also think um, as bad as supply constraints are, I think some of those input costs are coming down. I mean, look at look at the price of all the things that we talked about today in the A block. Um, there's there's at least a tailwind, I think, on price pressures for a lot of these home builders. All right. Coming up, if you're wondering what to do after today's rough trading, look no further. Chris Verone will be here to lay out some of his top safety plays. The first, China's Evergrande debt crisis sending ripples through the broader market. Could a default rock the U.S. bond market? We're breaking down the potential fallout when fast money returns. Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Demand for energy is projected to continue rising in the future. To help keep up, Chevron is increasing their U.S. oil and gas production, and they're innovating to help do it responsibly across their operations, including their Gulf of Mexico facilities, which are some of the world's lowest carbon intensity operations, helping supply energy that's affordable, reliable, and ever cleaner. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com slash meeting demand. Welcome back to Fast Money. Wall Street Rock today as we continue to follow the latest developments out of Chinese property giant uh, Evergrande, the company on the brink of collapse, sending shockwaves through global markets. Let's get to Eunice Yoon on the ground in Beijing with more. Evergrande is China's second largest property developer. The company owes $300 billion in liabilities and recently warned it sees significant decline in property sales and cross-default risks. We'll soon find out if Evergrande will avoid default. Four things to watch. First, interest payment deadlines on bank loans and bonds this week. If Evergrande fails to settle payments on bonds due Thursday within 30 days, it could face restructuring. Second, a rescue plan. Beijing has signaled it's not keen to step in with a direct government bailout and potentially encourage excessive borrowing in the private sector. Chinese media are now reporting one of its rivals, Country Garden, might buy assets. Third, central bank action. 
The expectation is the People's Bank of China will inject liquidity to avoid a credit freeze. Evergrande is representative of a highly leveraged sector, and the fear is the company could trigger a wave of defaults. And finally, the market resumes Wednesday after a long public holiday. So we'll get a picture midweek of how investors here in China react. Back to you. Thank you, Eunice. For more on Evergrande's debt issue, let's bring in Chris White of BondClick. Um, Chris, great to have you with us. How do you think about the possible impact of a default? Well, I think one of the things that we're seeing right now is we're seeing an example of what the Fed and many of the G7 countries have been trying to avoid, which is a super large issuer actually defaulting and what that might do to the overall confidence in the market. So as you were just talking about what the Chinese central bank might do, it's very, very important to watch their action here because if they decide to have a hands-off approach, it could start to shake confidence in dollar-denominated emerging market debt, which has been hot for the past three or four years as global investors have been looking for yield. So who owns this debt in large part, Chris? I mean, I imagine... Lots and lots of funds do, as you mentioned. There are so many funds out there, so many investors are starved for any kind of yield. Yeah, there are going to be some names in terms of the big holders, people that you know. Uh, I know BlackRock's in the top five in terms of one of the holders. That's looking across all of their corporate debt, uh, specifically around you know the two issues that are trading in the marketplace. Um, the holding information is public. But I think what's what's going to be important here is is not just who the holders are, but really how is the treatment of a default going to be different than what the G7 countries have done? Because if the treatment is really what we used to do in the old days, which is just let an actual company default, I think that's when a lot of people will be questioning the strategy of having invested a lot of uh, dollars into dollar-denominated emerging market debt um, because the central banks may not bail them out like they have in the G7. Chris, it's Karen. Thanks for being on now. I've looked at the debt over the last couple of weeks, and I mean, this is not a surprise to the debt. I know it was down a lot yesterday, but, you know, it's down a ton. Doesn't it already reflect um, default or really very low likelihood of getting anything remotely close to par back? Hasn't most of the pain been felt? Well, absolutely. If you were a holder a month ago, bonds were trading, for example, in their issue that's maturing in about six months, bonds were trading at 53 cents in the dollar. Those bonds we're seeing on our system now uh, where trades are being reported at about 25 cents in the dollar. So you certainly felt the pain on that ride down. And that should be incredibly concerning with something that's going to mature in six months because most people assume that within one year that the probability of default, even in some of the most distressed issues, is next to zero. Um, but the, the, the thing that's happened that's, that's really quite concerning is that the moves have been um, codified with a, a, a big increase in overall trading volume, which to me is the market affirming that, that there's a real problem here. And the more you see the prices go down, um, the more people are, are basically pricing in the fact that the central bank of China is not going to step in. Chris, if we sort of um, go one step further with this in terms of your extrapolations, if if we are to believe that investors will think differently about dollar-denominated emerging market debt, could they then pull their money out of other issues and put it into into other corporate debt? I mean, I'm just trying to think of of how investors, if if that really is the impact in terms of how investors regard the quote-unquote safety or backstop of this sort of debt, um, assuming that central banks will step in and central banks do not step in, then what happens? Yeah, I, th- I think you're making a really clear point. Like, what, what would you look for to understand whether there's a bigger problem with global markets beyond this default? And I think that if, if 
large investors do lose faith in dollar-denominated emerging market debt, will you, what you will see is global debt markets will have a larger, uh, a larger number of issues that are negative yielding. I think the, the total outstanding uh, volume or outstanding size of negative, negative yielding debt was about $12 trillion. That's down from $18 trillion about a year ago. And I could see that number going up to $20, $25 trillion because it ends up becoming a flight to quality. And that pushes all of the yields down and all of the prices up for debt. So, the, you know, the, the emerging market, dollar-denominated emerging market uh, market itself has, has about tripled in the past six or seven years. And that just shows you how much appetite there has been for yield. You shut that market off, people are going to have to put their money somewhere, and you're going to see it come back to a lot of these G7 nations and start to form some ultra-low interest rates. Chris, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. My pleasure. Chris White, Bond Click. Um, Tim Seymour, these are obviously extrapolations sort of you know, out, out there on the spectrum in terms of what, what can happen. But how should we think about emerging market debt when so many investors piled in in such a low-yield low world? Well, I, I, I think EM debt, dollar-denominated EM debt, uh, that in most cases is high yield, uh, although outside of the sovereign level, there's, there's plenty of investment-grade credits. I mean, we, let's, let's not confuse, and Chris, by the way, he's great. I mean, every time we have him on our show, I think our viewers learn a lot more about how credit markets work. Um, but there's a difference between negative-yielding bonds um, as a function, really, of where inflation is and where yields are. Um, real rates versus, versus actual rates. Um, in terms of credit quality, um, look, the, every central bank in the world has forced investors out the risk curve. And it's a case where at some point, again, think about where we were relative to pre-COVID levels. We're about 50 percent tighter on the average across high yield, high yield debt. And, and it's it's not sustainable in a world that's slowing down from a growth perspective. So I don't think EM debt as an asset class. I realize um, China is is a bright light on EM dollar denominated debt. Um, but it's been like this for a long time. I think a lot of EM countries, first of all, have very, very liquid local currency bond markets, and they use their local currency as something that can float freely and actually remove a lot of pressure sometimes uh, in these situations. They have a lot more local currency debt than they used to. But there's no question, uh, big investors, and the reason you hear about BlackRock, a lot of that is just that they have some of the biggest ETFs in emerging. So that's what they do. They hold this debt. Um, and, and in some sense, they're the most sophisticated investors in the space. So um, I think we have to think about this in the context of just it's a wake up call um, for what central banks have done to every investor, especially public pension funds and endowments who have had to reach out for riskier debt. And in many cases, really don't know what they own. Coming up, we're continuing our breakdown of today's market sell-off. The Dow dropping more than 600 points. If you're seeking safety, Chris Varone will be here to lay out three safety trades, plus banks breaking down as well, and options traders making a huge bet on the group. We've got the details when Fast Money returns. Welcome back to Fast Money. Here's another look at how we finished the day on Wall Street. Stocks hit hard in a sweeping sell-off. It was a day where just about nothing worked for your money. But her next guest says there are three names to consider if you're looking for a place to hide out. Time to bring in Chris Verone, head of technical analysis at Strategus, a Baird company. Chris, good to see you. What are you looking at? Great to be here, Mel. Well, first, I think we just got to put this move in a little bit of context. Is this correction is not three or four days old. I mean, the average stock has actually been correcting for months and months and months. So we brought along a couple tables and a couple names where I think we can hide out and find some safety. 
The first thing I just want to show you, just a checkup of where we are thus far. Off the highs, both NASDAQ and S&P, both down about five. Russell, two, down about eight. But if you go to the second table, the average stock is actually already down quite a bit more than that. The average S&P stock is down about 13% from its each, uh And the average NASDAQ stock is down about 15% from its high. The average Russell 2000 stock is down almost 30. So under the surface, the average issue has actually been correcting for months and months and months. We actually think we're closer to the end of this than the beginning. I want to show you three names in particular that I think can be bought here. And what, what we're really looking for is one of two things, either names that are very oversold and good uptrends or stocks in a tough tape that are showing unusual signs of leadership uh, or strength. We'll start in healthcare with a pharma name. This is Lilly. There's just a ton of support near 220, 225 here. You're very, very oversold. 14-day RSI is well below 30. This is a pretty good condition for pharma in general. You've seen a lot of these names get just thrown out uh, over the last several weeks. I think Lilly and pharma more broadly is timely here. Uh, next, I want to talk about a semi. And I think semis have still quietly been a bright spot in a tough tape uh, over the last number of weeks. Broadcom, AVGO, um, you know, quietly making six-month relative highs versus the S&P today. So again, in a tough tape, this one is exhibiting some leadership. It's basically been sideways since January, but that's been enough over the last few weeks to exhibit some of this leadership. I think you want to be a buyer of any weakness here. It's still above its 50-day moving average. 80% of the S&P is below its 50-day. This one is still above. So it's exhibiting that type of leadership that we want to see. And then third, I think it's very curious that some of the travel stuff, some of the consumer names are actually acting better. This is Marriott, ticker MAR, actually closed on the highs today. It hasn't made a new low since July. It's breaking out in relative terms. I think you play for a rally back to 160 here as we move into the back half of the year. So three names in a market that I think a lot of stocks have actually already corrected. The only thing that really hasn't been hit enough is the index. The average stock is already down pretty sharply. Chris, if we had you on today and today were a completely different market day and we were flat to higher, would you still say that these three names look good? Yeah, I think in particular what's really notable is some of the travel stuff, despite all the concerns about COVID and growth slowdown, these things have actually started to firm over the last couple of weeks. Marriott is an example. Expedia uh, is um, one more. We've seen the airlines the last couple of days actually start to get a bid. So I'm actually very interested that some of the consumer cyclicals, some of the reopened names, some of the travel stocks in a sloppy tape are actually acting pretty well here. Chris, good to see you. Thanks. Christopher Owen, Strategus. Guy Dami, which name do you like? The three safety trades. Choose your adventure, as they say. I, it would be Broadcom, which does come out, AVGO. They just reported on September 2nd. Operating margins were up to 58%. The street was looking for 54%, I think. So they're blowing things away on that front. By the way, I mean, you're talking about a company that has about 12% EPS growth, trading at 16 times next year's numbers, which in this world is outright cheap. I think it made an all-time high last week, 510 or so. We've pulled back a little. That's, that would be my adventure, Mel. I know you didn't ask for that game, but I chose it myself. Well, I asked you to pick a stock, so and you did that. So good for you. Uh, Dan, same question to you. Which one do you like? Yeah, I'm going to play a different game. Expedia, I liked. And Chris did mention Expedia, but, you know, that thing is supposed to get back to 
pre-pandemic revenues, maybe next year, they're supposed to grow um, at least 25%. Earnings are expected to be up uh, fairly nicely off of a small loss this year. This one looks interesting to me. It closed up today, like Chris mentioned in the, in the Marriott. Um, I, I like this one. Good balance sheet, reasonable valuation. And obviously, when the pandemic's behind us, this thing's going to rip. Coming up, the financial stocks not immune to today's market sell-off, and option traders are making a huge bet on the banks. We've got the details next. Plus, stocks dropping as trouble from overseas sends stocks plummeting. We are getting a preview of what to expect when Asian markets open. Don't go anywhere. Fast Money's back in two. Welcome back to Fast Money. Check out the banks getting blasted today's sell-off. The XLF financials ETF fearing worse than the broader S&P 500 uh, mark in today's uh, session. But one options trader is making a bet that the pain might be almost over um, from a name in the space. Tony Zhang is here to break down the action. Tony, what'd you see? Yeah, so Morgan Stanley traded pretty actively today. Almost over 80,000 contracts traded, which is more than two times the average daily volume. And while the stock was down over 3% here today, the 30-day front month options rose by more than 20% in terms of implied volatility. So one trader took advantage of this elevated implied volatility and sold 19,000 contracts of the October $90 puts for about $1.30. That accounts for almost a quarter of all of the contracts traded today. And these puts are about 9% out of the money. So if Morgan Stanley stays above the $90 level by the October expiration, this trader will profit about $2.5 million or the premium that they collected on selling these puts. But if Morgan Stanley is below $90 by the October expiration, they're going to need about $168 million to purchase the 1.9 million shares of Morgan Stanley that they're obligated to purchase by selling this put. So this is a fairly bullish, a fairly certain bet that Morgan Stanley will hold up here over the next three and a half weeks or so before the October expiration. Tony, would you know, does this encompass earnings? Uh, no, I, I do not believe so, because I think it comes out right after the October. The, this expires on October 15th. I believe the earnings is the following week for Morgan Stanley. Yep. OK, great, Tony. Thanks, Tony Zhang. Dan? What'd you make Real of this? Yeah, the, yeah, it looks like earnings are confirmed for October 14th. And, and to Tony's point, I mean, this is kind of one way to work yourself in a position to a stock that traded as high as very near 106, um, you know, just a couple months ago um, to me. But to your point, you know, selling naked puts in an environment like this is definitely uh, deep end of the pool stuff for most people watching the show. Yeah. For more options action, be sure to tune into the full show. That's Friday, 5.30 p.m. Eastern time. Coming up next, markets getting rocked today as trouble from overseas and stocks plummeting. We're getting a preview of what to expect when Asian markets open. Fast Money's back in two. Welcome back to Fast Money. We're just a few hours away from markets opening for the day in Asia. Let's get to CNBC's Will Kaloris live in Sydney with the early setup. Hi, Will. Hi, Melissa. Yeah, another day of selling is expected for the Asian markets. In particular, if you do look at the Nikkei 225, they were closed yesterday for a holiday. And just the indicative trading shows around about a 3.1% drop is to be expected as they play a little bit of a catch-up from all the selling that we did see across the region yesterday. Obviously, that was highlighted by Hong Kong that was down by well over 3%. It's worst day since July, and it's sitting at the worst level since October last year. The Evergrande debt crisis obviously playing into that and also that risk 
that contagion could spread across the property sector. And I suppose one of the biggest markets to be concerned about when it does come to any kind of China risk is the most exposed, which is, of course, here in Australia. We're setting up basically for our third straight session of losses for the ASX 200. SPY futures indicating right now 1.4% drop. But we've really seen our commodities plays getting absolutely hammered over the course of the last two sessions. If you look at those big iron ore names, the iron ore price yet again dropping by a further 8%. It's well below 100 US dollars a tonne because of the fact that if you think about the Chinese real estate sector, 30% of the steel, so that's where we're seeing the pressure and the Australian markets will be set for a big drop again today, Melissa. All right, Will, thank you. Will Kaloris in Australia for us. Um, Guy Adami, what will you be looking for first thing tomorrow morning? Yeah, bond market for sure. Tim mentioned the dollar. That's the other thing, clearly. But, you know, so to me, it's the bond market. Today, obviously, saw a flight to quality in the form of buying in the TLT and yields going lower. We'll see if that continues. Real quick, though, you know, Chris said something interesting earlier in the show, the fact that the lower uh, Evergrande goes, the more, unli- the more unlikely it would be for the t- Bank of China to step in. You know, what a unique and refreshing thought that, you know, these central banks will actually allow things to fail. We should actually give that a shot here. It might be refreshing. There's a degree of irony in that to think that communist China's central bank will allow the markets to function as they will function when the U.S. central bank and other central banks actually intervene. Um, that's just an aside, though. Karen, first thing tomorrow morning, what will you look for? Well, that's a really good comment that you made, though. I mean, that we wouldn't let that happen and that they would. That, that's kind of ironic. Um, what I'm looking is what happened overnight. I'm sort of hoping that we see, you know, some bad... Uh, action sort of around the world, and we open down here, and then I'll be looking <clears throat> to buy. Tim? I wouldn't do anything till Europe closes, which is, I think, where Karen and Guy are both talking about it. You know, typically, the, you need to see those markets close to see where we begin to price in some, some strength here. Um, I, I just think that ultimately investors right here uh, don't have a credit crisis. And, and I, I, you know, there's been all kinds of parallels and analogs we've been hearing about with Evergrande today. Let's see where it goes. Okay, up next, final trades. Happy birthday to Dan Nathan. Final trades. Tim. Happy birthday, Dan. Best Buy looking good into earnings uh, and season end. Gross margins going higher. Karen. Happy birthday, Salty Dan. Uh, I like Chris Barone's Lily. I like the whole healthcare space, the helping pharma space. Birthday boy. Yeah, thank you all. Hey, uh, Expedia, I like Barone's call there on that one. Guy. That's the Ian Hope trade. Happy 49th birthday, Dan. And I like Verone's call on Broadcom, as they said, ABGO. All right. Thanks for watching Fast. See you back here tomorrow at 5. Mad Money with Jim Cramer starts right now. Is America's primary system working? Is the Electoral College still the best process for electing a president? Could a third-party candidate ever be successful? In a new season of You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen Gather the country's top experts to explore these issues and more as we approach the 2024 presidential election. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available now wherever you get your podcasts.